please turn with me to Romans 7. We're going to start in verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Thank you, Father, for your word. Uh, so oftentimes um, in our family, we've had various conversations, usually around the dinner table, about whether or not a certain action is a sin. Oftentimes, my very learned older children will say, hey, what about this? Is this a sin? And now. When they ask a question like that, of course, it's usually something that, it's always something that's not clearly spelled out in the Bible. That wouldn't be hard to discern. But it's some sort of controversial issue that Christians often take different opinions about. And um, when I hear that kind of question, my answer that first pops in my mind uh, is usually the phrase, well, it's complicated. It's complicated. And the reason it's complicated is because whenever we're trying to discern what sin is, we look, of course, into the Bible. We look into um, what God has commanded, what God has said, what God has revealed. But we also recognize that within that revelation of God, there are complexities to the issue or the question that is being addressed. In the Bible, we find a relationship between what God has revealed, God's law, what God has commanded, and sin. The relationship between law what God has commanded, instructed, and sin is 
very complicated. Um, Here's what I mean by that. The Bible has already told us here in Romans that, we saw this last week in verse 12, that the law, again, when we say the law, we don't just mean things that God has commanded, bare rules. Um, The word Torah, you're probably familiar with, is the Hebrew word for instruction, not just cold rules, but a path, a way of life, instructions, directions. And verse 12 is very clear that God's law is good. His commandments are holy, righteous, and good. Nevertheless, Paul has told us, he opened Romans chapter 7 by telling us that because sin lives, thrives, feasts on the law of God, we have a desperate need uh, because sin has become then so intertwined with God's law. We have a need actually to be released from the law, set free from it. We saw both of these in Romans chapter 7. Again, verse 12, the law is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. But verse 6, Romans 7 says, but now we are released from the law. So do you see the relationship between God's law and sin is complicated? So that's why Romans chapter 7 tends to be one of those chapters that is puzzling as we read through it. But what I want us to see this morning as we bring this chapter to a close and really set the stage for what we're going to look at for the next three weeks, Lord willing, the first 11 verses of chapter 8, what I want us to see this morning is that though the relationship between God's law and sin is complicated, the law of God has a very important, powerful, wonderful um, role that it plays in the history of redemption. And I, I think Paul lays it out maybe in, in three ways this morning that will help us think about it. First, there is the target of the law, what the law intends to put up as a bullseye for us to see, the, the target of the law. But then second is the trap, the trap that the law sets. And then finally, the triumph. I thought these three things would be easy for us to remember. The target of the law, the trap of the law, and then the triumph of the law. So stay with me as we look at these three different areas through verses 13 to 25 of chapter 7. Notice first the target of the law. Verse 13, Paul takes up another question about the law. So Pastor Darrell Uh, Talk to us about the first question in verse 7, is the law sin? That was the first thing that was brought up. This complicated relationship would make you ask, well, is the law of God a sinful thing? We need to be set free from it? He says, no means. Now he takes up another question here in verse 13. Okay, so the law is not sin. It's holy, righteous, and good. But did that which is good then bring death to me, he says. 
Uh, again, this is a logical conclusion that we might come to. Okay, the law is good. It's, it's God's law after all. But doesn't it functionally create evil for us as human beings? And that's why we need to be set free from it. And again, Paul said back in verse 9 that he was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. So wouldn't it make sense then to just say that we need to just have the law done away with since it seems to be the weapon that sin uses to kill us. And again, you'll notice Paul's response is the emphatic by no means. Getting rid of the law, the instruction of God, does not get rid of the problem and would in fact, Paul's going to show us, make it worse. It's not the law of God that should be our concern, but sin. Now, by the word sin here, Paul would have us think not of the collection of all human transgressions. When Paul here in Romans 7 is talking about sin, this will come through, I think, quite clearly. He's talking about a a dark mysterious entity that exists in God's world and has corrupted every part of it, including all humanity. This sin, and perhaps we should think of it with a capital S, is the same thing as what we find other, in other places in the Bible, the, the figure of the Satan. Uh, In fact, the Apostle Paul seems to not want to use the word Satan very much. We find it only 10 times in all of Paul's letters. But the same figure is clearly in view here when Paul's talking about sin. And Paul is telling us how this dark, mysterious figure, the, the Satan, sin, is at work. And the weapon that he uses to bring death into God's good world is God's good law. So Paul tells us it's not the law that brought death into the world. It's not God giving instructions, giving commands. That's not what brought death into the world. The law itself does not kill. Sin, this dark Mysterious power, sin kills. But notice this, sin has no power of its own. No power of its own. It has to to make use of God's good law in order to bring about death. In the Old Testament, you might be familiar, I'm, I'm guessing you are familiar with the story of Daniel and the lion's den. Remember that story? Daniel chapter 6. Daniel's enemies, jealous of his promotion within the kingdom, sought a way to take him down. But they could find no ground or complaint or any faults because Daniel was faithful. No error or fault was found in him. So these men said, these are Daniel's adversaries. These men said, we shall not find any ground or complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. You remember what they did? They set Daniel up to have to make a choice between obeying the law of God or the law of the pagan king. Now, were it not for the existence of God's law, Daniel would not have been in any danger. 
But being forced to choose between two competing laws put him in jeopardy. Daniel was not thrown into the lion's den because of God's law, but because of his evil adversaries making use of God's law. Do you see how that worked out? You can nod your head. I mean, you know, I'm just trying to help us. Okay, thanks. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate that, brother. That's how sin works. That's how sin works. It's not God's law, but sin. Again, sin like, is viewed here as a personal sinister power, an, an entity with a will. It was sin, Paul says in verse 11, that deceived me. And through it, the law killed me. God's law is not our problem. Sin is our problem. Sin is the target. And we should hate this sin more than we hate anything else in the world. We should hate sin because we can see here in the way it works how perverse it is. Again, it has no power of its own. No power of its own. It has to co-opt God's good law in order to achieve its devious scheme. So sin is a power, but it's not a competing power. It's not a rival or an equal to God and to his goodness. Sin is a cancer, a deadly disease that lives off the sustenance of God's good law. That's how horrible it is. So can anything be done about this great evil in the world This power that Paul says in verse 13 produced death in him. Now read on in verse 13. I want you, you got to see this. You got to see this. I want you to notice there's two purpose statements, two reasons in verse 13 why sin produced death in him through the good law of God. But I want you to notice Very carefully, these two purposes are not sin's purposes. So the first purpose is in order that, you see it, verse 13, in order that sin might be shown to be sin. Now, sin, or Satan, is not interested in revealing how sinful he is. Sin is not interested in letting us see how ugly, how perverse it is. The purpose that's stated here cannot be sin's purpose. So whose purpose is it? And the only answer can be this is, this is God's purpose. This is the reason why God allows, ordains, decrees that the law comes in and sin takes it. Seizes the opportunity, Paul said twice in the previous passage. God ordained that sin would make use of his good law just like this. It was one of the primary reasons that God gave his law, made it plain, revealed it. Ten commandments, spoke it out, wrote it down. He did this in order for sin to show its true color, to be shown for the evil that it really is. This power in the world and in your life is no friend, but is the consummate enemy making use of God's good things in order to bring about our destruction. God gave his law for this reason, to expose sin and its true colors. That's why he did it. By the way, side note, 
this will help. And all of those debated things. So to take one obvious example, alcohol. Alcohol, which can be the cause of so much devastation and destruction. And yet in the Bible, alcohol is spoken of just as frequently in positive terms. Does that confuse you? God's goodness, God's good world is corrupted, not by some rival power, but by sin taking opportunity of God's good things, feasting on it. That's how devious, that's how ugly, that's how hideous sin is. Now, here's the second purpose. Notice it. The second purpose that God had for giving his law comes next in verse 13. Again, he did this in order that, the ESV doesn't have the in order that there, but it is right there in the Greek. He did this in order that through the commandment, sin might become sinful beyond measure. (laughs) Now, this will raise some eyebrows. I'm looking. You got your eyebrows raised? You should. Look what it says. To speak of sin becoming sinful beyond measure signals that God intended for sin to feast on his law and grow. To to increase In some way, God gave his law, his good law, knowing, intending that sin would seize the opportunity through it and grow large. Now, you look at a statement like that. And you wouldn't be surprised then to to find some people saying, who is this God? How could we trust a God like that? Why would a good God give a law which only seems to enlarge the horrors of sin? Why would a good God give a law that would serve to feed such a monster called sin? Allow it to grow into such a terrible force at work in the world today. Why would he do such a thing? Why, why, why? But surely, at least we can suspect that if God is good, maybe he's up to something here. Maybe he's up to something. And in fact, we've already been told back in chapter 5, and this is one of the reasons we're trying to move with some decent pace through Romans, because you can't, you can't forget what happened in chapter 5, because it's still very much in view when you're here in chapter 7. All the way back in chapter all the way back, two chapters back, In chapter 5, we were told that, yes, the law came in to increase the trespass. Romans 5.20. That's what Paul's talking about right here. The law came in to increase the trespass. But do you remember what Romans 5.20 says? Flip over, look at it. Where sin increased, what happens? You can... I'll let you find it. Grace abounded all the more. You like grace? You like grace? So God is up to something. Do you see it? God has never allowed the horrors of sin to have a field day without flooding the same field of horror with abundant grace. 
So yes, God is up to something. And Paul wants us to know that though sin has taken advantage of God's law, make no mistake, it is God who is in control and the giving of his law is part of his plan to overthrow sin once and for all. God gave his good law in order to lure sin into one place, allowing it to do its worst in that one concentrated place so that God could then put the target up and deal the death blow to sin once for all. Where was that place? And the answer in Romans 7 is, it is I. The I is the trap that God by his law had set for sin and its ultimate overthrow. Now, think of it. Could, could there be a simpler word in English than I? Just one letter, it would seem, this little word could hardly be misunderstood. Doesn't I simply mean me? That is, the one who's talking. And to this, we would have to say, it certainly couldn't mean everyone else except me, right? So there should be no doubt that the I or the me in these verses in Romans 7 is true about Paul. He's saying something about his own experience in this chapter. And, and I'm sure many of us can relate to his experience, to what Paul says is true of him in some way. I mean, just look at verse 19. I'm guessing that when Crystal read it, it just resonated with many of you. For I, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Sound familiar? Sound familiar? Seems clear to me then that Paul intends for us to think of the experience that he describes here in Romans 7 as representative of others' experience as well as his own. He's speaking of himself, but not just himself. The I and the me in these verses is not just Paul, it is also you and me. But before we get into that, we have to first ask, what is this experience that he's describing here? And again, I, I'm saying that Paul in this chapter is talking about the complicated relationship between the law of God and sin. God's laws, his revealed will, his ways, his instructions are good, but sin feeds off of it and ends up bringing about death. So no matter who you are, God's law by itself is only going to bring death to you. It's certainly true for those who are not Christians. And it's possible that Paul is reflect, reflecting in these verses on his pre-Christian days. Back in verse 5, he speaks of pre-conversion as the time when we were living in the flesh. That is, again, prior to the time of conversion. And it's different way of living the life of conversion in verse 6. So verses 5 and 6 seem to set up this contrast. So accordingly... Some have said verses 7 to 25 may be referring to the life of the unregenerate person that verse 5 talked about. And then when you get to chapter 8, 
it takes us into the life of the regenerate person introduced in verse 6. Verse 14 says, to be sold under sin. That sure sounds like how Paul described the non-Christian, since in Romans 6, 7, he speaks of a Christian as having been set free from sin. So you wouldn't be surprised to know, and maybe that's how you read it, that Paul is describing in verses 7 to 25 the experience of life as a non-Christian. On the other hand, there's plenty of arguments in favor of understanding that what Paul's talking about in these verses is a Christian's experience. And many who favor this interpretation admit that verses 7 to 13, what Daryl talked about last week, describe pre-conversion, but then there's a striking change from the past tense to the present tense in verse 14, which seems to most naturally be read as a change from what was once true of Paul before Christ, and now is true for Paul as a Christian. The kind of inner turmoil described in verses 15 to 19, again, may more accurately reflect the Christian experience, the one that you resonate with. Verse 18 even suggests that there is a duality in the I in these verses, since Paul clarifies that it's in my flesh that no good seems to dwell. Why would he say that? Because Paul knows the Holy Spirit resides within him and in every Christian. So he's careful to say he's only talking about the human condition apart from the indwelling spirit That's where there's no good found. So surely, again, only the Christian who agrees with the law that it is good, as verse 16 says. Only the Christian delights in the law of God, as verse 22 says. So you're not surprised that many say these verses refer to the Christian experience. You confused? You like that? How do we decide whether Paul is referring to Christians or non-Christians in these verses? And by the way, there's numerous other arguments in favor of either position, and there's incredible counter-arguments to every single argument in favor of one position or the other. So what do you do when you read your Bible and you're like, how do we make sense of what Paul is trying to talk about here? And I think the key is to note, again, that the essential point Paul is making is true whichever view of the I one holds. Because his point, his point in this passage, again, is this relationship between sin as a power and the law. And the law has no power to deliver one from sin or to prevent one from sinning. So perhaps we're asking the wrong question. Perhaps trying to say, is Paul talking about the Christian experience in these verses or the non-Christian experience is completely beside the point. Maybe Paul's point is elsewhere. Indeed, I think it is. Think of it this way. In the passage that Crystal just read for us, there are clear echoes in the story to another story you should, I know you're familiar with. It's the story of Adam and Eve in Eden. Sin is present there, right? In the form of the figure of a serpent. The serpent does what? Seizes an opportunity that came with a command. Are you with me? Are you with me? The serpent takes the opportunity with, there's no power in the serpent. Serpent can't do anything to the man and woman except in regards to the law of their God. 
So, taking an opportunity, the serpent cast doubt on the goodness of God's commandment and thereby coaxed them into death. So, there are plenty of reasons to suspect that the I who speaks in these verses, while certainly not excluding Paul, nor you or me for that matter, because it was by the one man's disobedience that sin and death spread to us all, since we're all in Adam. What Paul actually wants to do here is to think of all of humanity, all humanity, I being representative of humanity, united to Adam and therefore united to sin and death. This is clear, I think, given Romans 5, 12 to 21, where he specifically talks about all of us fallen in Adam's disobedience. If that passage is still in our, in our sights, then I think that's clearly what Paul is doing in Romans chapter 7. He's talking not just about his story. He's talking about our story. That is humanity's story. He's talking, talk about practical. He's talking about the story every one of us human beings lives in every single day. It's the story of all of us descended from Adam, from the fallen man. But in speaking of God's purpose for giving the law, he's also speaking more specifically of Israel. The hope of Israel in the biblical story, indeed the very promise of Israel in the biblical story, is that in Israel we find hope. We find a solution to the problem of Adam and the fall of the entire creation. The law The law makes us think Mosaic law. It makes us think the Torah. It makes us think Exodus, Israel constituted, the hope of the world, promised land, salvation. This is the promise of the Old Testament. In Israel, we're supposed to find the defeat of sin, capital S, the defeat of Satan, the defeat of evil. Where are you going to find it? What's the biblical promise? The answer in the Old Testament is clear. You're going to find it in Israel. In Israel. By the way, that first song we sang today, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, you can't even make sense of the song if you don't believe that. And ransom captive Israel? What does the birth of Jesus have to do with ransoming Israel in captivity? This is the story of the Bible This is Genesis 12 playing itself out. The the hope of the world comes in Israel. That's what the law is all about. But what happened? What happened when God constituted his people? When the law came in? The Mosaic law came with the promise of life. Do this and you will live. But the result of the law was not life. It was death. And that's because with the coming of this commandment, with the coming of the Mosaic law, came a temptation which again proved to be irresistible. And just like in Eden, the hope of the world is dashed. But God is up to something. And the giving of the law, the creation of Israel as God's covenant people is not the problem here. The problem is not with the desire to do the Torah or any other commandment of God. In fact, verse 22 says, 
It's good to delight in the law of God. That's a reflection of what's stated repeatedly in the longest psalm. The problem is not God's law. The problem is that sin, capital S, has gotten inside. Sin has gotten within me. Yes, me, Ben Jansen. And yes, you. But it's worse. Sin has gotten in Paul. Sin has gotten in Israel. That's bad news. That's really bad news. Because if sin has gotten in Israel, the hope of the world, if Israel is in Adam too, then Israel needs to be saved. Israel needs to be ransomed from her exile before Israel could be any hope to the world. And that's exactly what God planned to do. The Apostle Paul, the good Jew that he was, came to see that everything, everything was going precisely according to God's plan. Israel, fallen, taken into captivity, enslaved once again, this time in Babylon, you know your story, and then brought back, oh, maybe this is it. We preached through Ezra. Is this this Israel being, being ransomed? And all throughout the rest of Old Testament history, all good Jews know we're still in exile. We're still in exile. We're still under oppression. We might be in our land, but we're still oppressed. We're still ruled by a foreign power. So salvation can't come to the world until this happens first. But the law of God, far from being a disaster, has served its purpose exactly the way God intended for it to do. It had come in first to target the real problem, sin. Sin is a power, capital S. It, it, it came in to expose this sin for what it really was. It had come in to trap sin, you know, to entrap it within Israel so that sin would have no more place to hide. All that is left then, don't you see? I mean, this feels terrible at this point. If you're following the biblical story, you're Israel in the first century. You are like, what is God doing? What is God up to? And, and Paul now says, wait a minute. I see it. I see what God's doing. He, he brought in his law to expose sin. He brought in his law to trap it right there within Israel so that the law would now play its final part. The triumph over sin. So the inner turmoil described in verses 22 to 23, it's rightly described here as a great battle, the waging of a war whose outcome will be a decisive victory for whichever side wins. It's kind of like, you know, a, a football game. Whoever wins, wins the conference title. And the ball's on the one yard line. On one side stand, on one side stand, just saying if you, I keep up, like I'm culturally relevant here in Oklahoma. One, one, one side stands 
the law of God, holy, righteous, and good. The other side is another law seeking to enslave us all to the law of sin. This is a battle. And again, it's true that this reflects the kind of inner turmoil that many of us experience, a battle with, within, between right and wrong, between good and evil. But the battle Paul seems to be describing is the greater overarching story of history. It's the battle between humanity as God's, the capstone of God's good creation and some evil, mysterious, dark power. What is it? What is it? What is that thing that wakes me up every day and I just feel distant from God? What is that thing that it just keeps coming in? I think God's against me. What is that thing that leads to tension and conflicts, even with the people I love most? What is this thing? It's a battle which we all fight all of us members of the human race. And the problem is we end up fighting each other. We end up seeing each other here or your neighbor as the enemy. Surely we all know deep down inside the real battle is not with flesh and blood. The enemy is not another human being. We're together, all of us humans, you and your coworker, saved or not. You, you are all together in this great battle. The agony that we, uh, I'm sorry, the, the enemy that we all experience then is not another human being. It's this other mysterious power. And so the wretched man in verse 24 is all of us. It's humanity. Whether you struggle with self-respect or not, you are all wretched humans. We long for a world. All of us do. Your neighbor does. Your coworker does. We, we long for a world the way God designed for it to be. And, and we're all trying to push for it one way or the other. It's a good desire. The law of God, the way of God, is a way of life. And you are right to want it. But the agony that we experience east of Eden is, is, an, is an, it's a purpose. It's intended. It's intended to draw us, all of us, to the exasperated cry of verse 24 where we see brokenness within or without, whether we see brokenness within or without, we are all right to cry out in agony. We Christians ought to be able to see the wrongs of the world and to sigh at its horrors. You should. You should. You hear the news, you should sigh. You shouldn't have the false piety that says, it's all going to be okay. No, the world is broken. And we see it every day. But we also ought to be the ones who know the solution can't lie within us. Nor with the way that we see things. Nor with our opinions that we hold about the way things ought to be. We know that the Savior has to come from without. Has to. We are with humanity in Adam. Groaning. Longing. For a savior. And it's not us. 
But we know that the Savior has come, so we express our thanks to God, verse 25 says, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, the next chapter is going to spell out in detail how Jesus has brought to all of us the salvation we long for. So we're going to park in chapter 8 for a while. But given what we've seen in this chapter, we can already see that the salvation came just as God planned, at just the right time, Galatians 4 says. Where did it come? It came just as God had said. It came in Israel. The wise men from the east, what are they doing? (laughs) Why are they coming? The king of the Jews. That's what the promise is. That's what the promise is. He's here. He's arrived. Oh, that all of us would have the same expectation and delight for what we celebrate at Christmas as those pagan wise men had. It's in Israel, the one place where God, through his law, had lured sin so that it could be overthrown, condemned, and defeated right there, once for all. Israel, now reconstituted around her plainly revealed Messiah, would once again offer the hope of the world. In Christ, God's law would be fulfilled, and therefore God's law would be vindicated, justified from sin. Sin itself, capital S, would be defeated. The accuser of the brothers and sisters would be cast down. A new Adam would finally prevail and peace would come to our world again. That's the message of Christmas. Rejoice in it. Let's pray.